Welcome to The Nest Podcast, a place where we have down-to-earth, uplifting conversations about women's health, healing, our inherent feminine wisdom, and the magic that happens when we decide to be the hero of our life and not the victim of it. Here we'll explore a wide range of topics, from holistic nutrition, metabolic health, and balancing your hormones, to mind-body medicine and how intuition, spirituality, and consciousness are revolutionizing health and healing. On this episode, I'm joined by Ali Ramos. Allie shares her incredible story of healing her endometriosis by healing her trauma and deep wounds from childhood. After 13 years of living with clinical stage 4 endometriosis, multiple failed surgeries, hormone therapies, and living life on 6 to 8 different medications daily, Allie found a more holistic approach and began to move through her adverse childhood events. Since then, her symptoms of endometriosis have been in remission and she is finally free of pharmaceuticals. If you're a woman looking for holistic ways to heal your womb, then this is an episode you don't want to miss. So sit back, open your heart and mind, and get ready for a dose of inspiration to motivate you on your healing journey. Let's dive in. Hi, Allie. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I'm so excited for you to share your story with the listeners. I think it's such a powerful, beautiful story that so clearly brings home this message of mind-body medicine and how deep wounds um, can or can and do live in the body. Mm-hmm. And if we don't feel in order to heal, you know, it manifests as illness. Now, we're going to talk about your story here in just a minute. But to kick us off, I wanted to read a quote from this book called Molecules of Emotion. It's written by Candace Perch. She's a PhD Uh, She's a neuroscientist and research professor at the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And I think it's a great quote to just kind of kick off and give context to our conversation. Here is the quote. So the concept of a network stressing the interconnectedness of all systems of the organism of, of us humans has a variety of paradigm breaking implications. So she's talking about this idea of mind body medicine or the mind and the body. So in the popular lexicon, these kinds of connections between the body and the brain have long been referred to as the power of the mind over the body. But in light of my research, that phrase does not describe accurately what is happening. Mind doesn't dominate the body. It becomes the body. The body and the mind are one. I see the process of communication we have demonstrated, the flow of information throughout the whole organism, as evidence that the body is the actual outward manifestation in physical space of the mind. So and she uses this term called body-mind. As a term first proposed by Diane Connolly, it reflects the understanding derived from Chinese medicine, little shout out to Chinese medicine, <laughs> I love and I practice, um, that the body is inseparable from the mind. And when we explore the role that emotions play in the body, as expressed through the neuropeptide molecules, it will become clear how emotions can be seen as key to understanding disease. PhD, she's a researcher. What we're the conversation that we're about to embark on, this isn't woo-woo craziness. This is legit science. Mm -hmm. Our emotions literally become manifest in the body. And for so much disease, it can be seen as the root cause. So with that introduction, Allie, Let's jump in and talk a little bit about your story. I would love for you to share with the listeners who you are and yeah, just give a little bit of context about you. My name is Allie. I go by Al, but I just turned 33 and I have a clinical diagnosis of stage four endometriosis, insomnia, generalized anxiety disorder, depression, IBS, (laughs) trying to think of all the things. Yeah, that originally started as a very young, young child. I think at the time, so this is probably between like ages of two and three, they really didn't have the, well, A, the studies, the research for it. So, you know, I was deemed the little kid that was acting out, uh, responding to events that were happening, happening in my childhood, which then later turned into dis-ease or disease um, in the body. And my, my first, I would say, issue really started with sleep from as, like as far back as I can remember, I struggled with insomnia. And then around the age, I think I was 17 when I got my diagnosis of endometriosis. And I lived with that and I lived with all those diagnoses. Well, yeah, all of them (laughs) up until about 
Can I stop you for a second? I just yeah. want to, can we define for people listening who may not know what endometriosis is? Yeah, just absolutely. A little quick definition of it. So endometriosis is when, well, it has many different symptoms such as, you know, really painful periods, abnormal, heavy bleeding, constipation, nausea, bloating, abdominal fullness, infertility, pelvic, back pain, you know, pain during sex, the list goes on. And it's when the lining that is in like the, there's three layers of the uterus. There's, you know, the perimetrium, the myometrium and the endometrium. The endometrium is the inner lining that we shed every month with our menstrual cycles. And it's supposed to be just inside the uterus. So endometriosis is when that tissue can be found elsewhere, such as ovaries, fallopian tubes, and intestines. For me, and they they grade it, right? So it's grade one to grade four. I don't personally believe it really matters what your grade is. It doesn't define your pain level. Four um, being the worst, right? Four being the worst, yes. For me, it, as I got older, it started probably very much as a stage one and progressed onwards. Um, the last time I had a laparoscopy done, which is actually the only true way to technically diagnose endometriosis is with a laparoscopy, was in 2018. And mine had spread also to my bladder. The other thing with endometriosis is it's very much a whole body disease. So I also suffered from referred pain. You'll hear a lot of people with endo talk about sciatic pain, pain in the legs, shoulder pain, which is also kind of a catch 22 because the way that these surgeries are done is using, you know, they blow you up with this gas to make sure that they can see everything but that gas has to go somewhere and that in it of itself can be extremely painful to deal with afterwards. So yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of my dis-ease story, I guess you could say. And I say dis-ease because what I know now is so much different than what I knew back then. I was very much glued to this was going to be a life sentence and I was going to deal with all of these problems forever because that is what I was told. And I didn't have a lot of options. That was another thing is I, it can feel so crippling because they tell you, you don't have a lot of job, a lot of options. All you can do is manage symptoms. And then I would say I hit a very deep rock bottom, more so emotionally than physically, but also you know, as that quote mentioned, there is no disconnection between the mind and the body. So mentally, I was, ex I was very depressed. I was living on six to eight different medications a day. And how time. old were you at this point when you were like six to eight medications a day? I was 28. I was also working a, a what I call a big girl corporate level job. So I was hiding a lot of this. I wasn't letting anybody see this. I, I couldn't let my boss know how bad the pain was every single day. I remember being in my office and doing, you know, like child's pose and then getting back up or, you know, popping 800 milligram ibuprofen because I couldn't take the other pain medications while I was at work. And that you, was, was it constant pain throughout your cycle or was it just around, like, obviously just with menstruation or was it like throughout your cycle? Well, it's a little bit hard to answer because I was on so many hormone therapies. So I didn't really have a true cycle before I was on a ton of hormone therapy. So back, like when I was first diagnosed, it was very much painful, very heavy, always very heavy periods. Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed pretty early on, which is actually uncommon with people with endo. It usually takes them eight to 10 years to get an actual diagnosis. I was at the time playing soccer pretty regularly. And I had a cyst burst and they thought that it was my appendix. So I was rushed to the emergency room where they were like, oh no, this is a cyst. And then the next, the very next year I had my first laparoscopy and I was diagnosed. So I, I guess in a way it was pretty fortunate because I wasn't left wondering what it was, but very shortly after that, I is when they started me on the Depo-Provera injection. So they completely oh, wow. shut down all of my cycle. So to be honest, I don't really know anymore if it was the whole cycle, because after that, it was maybe I got a year out of the depot shots, but those come with serious consequences, major, major side effects. I gained a lot of weight from them. I was also really young and like, didn't really know very much. I also remember trying multiple different oral birth controls. I cannot remember the name. It's the one you take for three months on and then off, um, yeah. which is also horrible. <laughs> I did the patch that you wear. From there, 
is when they were like, they spoke to me about doing an IUD. So I had the Mirena IUD put in because the idea, again, at the time, they didn't know a ton about this, but the idea was, well, if we give you a localized hormone, maybe that will stop some of your pain. From 17 to 28, I had, well, 28 was my last surgery. So I had five surgeries to remove. um, Five laparoscopic surgeries where they went in to remove endometrial tissue from your organs that were not your uterus. Correct. Yes. To be honest, my last one was done outside of the US and I had it done in Colombia. That doctor is actually kind of what changed my mind slightly moving forward. Their healthcare was great. It was a private hospital. He was very gentle in his approach. He sat down and explained what he was going to do. He, the follow-up care was amazing. But after the procedure, he had sat down and he, he told me, you know, I'm worried that your surgeries are actually causing more problems than they're helping you at this point. And I remember being like, what does that mean? And I think that was where the shift started a little bit, not a ton, but it got me to think, okay, like I can't just keep doing this. This isn't the answer. Yeah. You're only 28 at that point. You had had five surgeries, the scar tissue alone, let alone all the drugs. That was a lot for your body Mm -hmm. to take. And then at what point were you put on Lupron? So that was March of 2018. Um, and I was at the time we were living in Colombia, came back and the following year I was already in just tremendous, tremendous amounts of pain. I had never wanted to do Lupron. I was talked to about doing Lupron multiple times and you and I had chatted about this, but my background at the time was veterinary medicine. And I knew what Lupron was because we use it in vet med as well. Let's clarify for people what it is. It is a chemotherapy drug. Yes. It's used for prostate cancer and, you know, breast uterine cancer, certain types of breast and uterine cancer, because what it does is it shuts down the production of sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's horrible. <laughs> it's a really uh, powerful, really, really powerful drug. It's a very powerful drug. So at this time now I was about 30, I think it was just going to be 30. And it also essentially the idea with endo, right. Is that it puts you into a chemically induced state of menopause. Mm -hmm. So I'm 30 years old going into menopause, premature menopause at 30. Right. Um, and consciously I knew that I didn't want to do this. Like I knew all of the risks, the side effects, but I was like, I had mentioned, I was at my rock bottom. So what other options did I really have? I also, in between returning from Columbia and starting Lupron had, so I still had my IUD. They, their idea was let's change it, right? Let's give you a new one. So the hormone's stronger. <laughs> and then also they had put in the Nexplanon, which is, um, the little chip like match stick that goes in your arm because the IUD doesn't shut down ovulation. And one thing that I could pinpoint, even though I wasn't having a real cycle, which I think just for listeners out there and, and really just, I think it's important to understand if you are on hormonal birth control, you're not having a true bleed. So I didn't understand this, but I did know that I was still ovulating. Like I could tell that I was still ovulating because ovulation in it of itself is an inflammatory process. And I think a lot of people also don't know that. And so with endo women, it can actually be very painful. So their idea from there was to use the next plan on because it does shut down ovulation. So now I have these two devices in my body. The one in my arm just never felt right. Like I could always feel it. It it didn't seem to be helping. So I had them take that out. I still had my IUD and here I go. I get my first Lupron injection. Um, That was in the fall, uh, like right before 2020 happened. (laughs) And it was horrible. It was it was absolutely horrible. Just like I thought it was going to be before I got the first injection. Um, they had put me on something called Pristique, which is a newer age antidepressant, but they use it in women going through menopause to help with the side effects of menopause. So I had to start that before I could even agree to get the Lupron injections. So now I am on, I guess I should also clarify those six to eight medications. Um, I think it was six to eight. So I have, you know, all the hormone therapies going on. I have gabapentin, which is used as a nerve pain medication. I was on 300 milligrams three times a day, which is a pretty high dose. 
um, I, I couldn't take that and function at work at all. To be honest, I was on the ibuprofen, which is just, you know, long-term, you're not supposed to be doing that. Yeah. I was taking the Pristique. I was taking additional kind of like supplements that I would say were supposed to help with anxiety and sleep and things like that. And then I was on two milligrams of Xanax every single night that was supposed to also help with anxiety and insomnia that I was dealing with. And, and at no point was there ever any mention of, well, why are these things happening? I was, I was just going to ask you, and at any point, did anyone say to you, what is the root cause of this? No well, one ever asked, or no one tried to, to journey with you to discover what could be at the root of this. Not yet. Not at this point yet. So I agreed just, to do Lupron. Yeah. It was horrible. I was like, I absolutely am not doing this. Like, I mean, once it's done, it's done. You just don't continue getting the injections and it takes a long time for it to, they say, oh, you need a second injection after one month. And I personally believe that it took way longer to get the hormones out of my system than, than that. So the next approach was that I needed to be referred to a pain clinic, which I obviously wasn't going to disagree with because I could not manage the pain. Like I couldn't manage both the physical and mental pain at this point. Part of being admitted to the pain clinic was agreeing to go back to therapy, which I had been in on and off my whole life. So I wasn't opposed to it, but I had only ever done CBT. So, you know, very much sitting down with a person. Yeah. That's cognitive behavioral therapy for people listening. Yes. And very traditional talk therapy. Yes. Like I remember on Thursdays, I would go talk to this woman who looked identical to Sharon Osborne. I don't actually remember her name, but you know, nothing ever came of it outside of I vented at her and I was like, see you next Thursday. And we moved on. So I was fine. I was fine to go back to therapy. I was not opposed to that. I did a few trigger point injection therapies for my referred pain, which lasted about eight hours for me. They're supposed to last like six months. So that was not great. So that's where they take this Oh, I don't even know. I want to say like, it feels like a foot long needle. They're huge needles. Yeah. Oh, and it's so trying, big. To, trying to get the muscle to release the tension, right. For the muscle yes. to let go and to relax. Yes. Um, I I've done that. that to people many times, not anymore, but I did a lot in my training trigger point. A lot of physiotherapists use it now. It's called dry needling. It's, ex- For, it's, excruciating. it's extreme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at that point I was like, I, I don't know what to do anymore. I, I think that I'm not like a religious person per se, but I do think the type of therapist that I got, however, I got paired with the person, I'm not really sure was exactly what I needed. So he practices something called psychoneuroimmunology, which Mm -hmm. is a big word and nobody knows really what it means. I I practice that too. Yep. Okay. Um, I'll try to explain it in the best way that I know how to. Uh, It's abbreviated PNI. And I think that easiest way to explain it for people is it's the relationship between the endocrine systems, the autoimmune systems and your nervous system. So it's taking all of your lived life experiences and really, I guess, molding and working on those relationships together so that there is a connection instead of this disconnection, which you see a lot in allopathic medicine or Western medicine. And it was very new to me. Like, like I said, my training an emerging field, it's not like super, super popular yet, but it's coming, (laughs) but it's coming. My training was always in Western medicine though, right? Like you have this ill, you take this pill, um, which is great for trauma. Like, and I don't mean like trauma that we're going to talk about trauma. I mean, trauma, like you got hit by a car, you broke your leg, you, you need that immediate. That's what that type of medicine is good for. So I always like to preface that I am not against allopathic medicine. I just think it has a time and a place. Again, I, I tiptoed into this and I think he did a really, really good job at, um, not coming at me too fast because I wouldn't have responded well. You probably would have rejected it right out of the gate. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, enter 2020, right. My husband and I were on a trip visiting friends in Cambodia. And I think I will forever remember this as being like the lowest part of my healing journey thus far. I say that thus far, because who knows what's to come. And I remember laying in our bed and I remember reading the book by Kelly Brogan, 
own, own yourself. Your, oh, own or, yourself. Own yourself. Yes. And I just remember being so scared of what was going to come in this next part of my journey. And I remember looking at him and being like, what if you don't like me anymore? And what if I don't like me anymore? And like, what if I get off all of these medications and I don't know who I am? And the reality is I didn't, <laughs> like, I didn't know who I was. And it's a very humbling thing to look back on now. And, you know, that was only 2020. So while it feels like a lifetime ago, it's, it really hasn't been that long. And that was when I experienced LSD for the first time on that trip. And I say, like, when I talk about it and when I share my experience with it, I always say that it was like the worst experience ever. Um, and I never wanted to ever do any sort of psychedelic or anything like that ever again. And I was, uh, the one thing that I appreciated about this therapist is I was always very honest with him. And I had this rule with myself that if I was going to do this, I was going to be honest because if I was lying to him, then I'm really just lying to myself. Yeah. It's not helping you. It's not going to help you in forward. And I told him, I came back from the trip and I told him, I was like, you know, I did this LSD experience and it wasn't very much, but it was horrible. And everyone around me, like there was only like four or five of us and they were all having an amazing time. And like, my husband was so happy. He cried. And I was over here like, this sucks. Like, this is horrible. And we talked about it. And I think even six months to a year after that, I would reference it. And it really did teach me that that experience or that trip, if you will, was actually everything that I needed to see. So it was dark because I was in a really dark spot. Yeah. It, it, it basically brought you into your shadow. It brought you into your stuff. And I didn't understand what shadow work really was, right? Like I was, I was reading this book and I was really starting to like, you know, that was when the holistic psychologist was, she wasn't half as big as she is now. I think she had maybe 30,000 followers and I was seeing the things that she was posting and I, it was getting me to think differently about doing shadow work and like what the shadow and the ego and like all these different parts of the psyche really were like, what was the psyche? You know, I didn't even know any of that. What's the subconscious mind? What's the subconscious mind? What's the conscious mind? All of that, right? All the neuroplasticity, psychoimmunology, like all of it, right? Well, and so, you know, a year into this, I was like, this is dumb. Like, I don't want to do this anymore because my symptoms were actually getting worse. So I was slowly tapering off of the pain medications because they weren't helping anyways. And I knew the side effects, right? I still knew long-term side effects were of using these drugs. And I was like, this is, this is just not helping. Like I can't keep going to this therapy and getting nothing out of it. Um, but then it started to shift a little. And I really think the shift came from me understanding that yes, like the way that my wounds presented was endo and all of these other depression, anxiety, insomnia, et cetera. But what it really was, was that me, like I had not addressed um, these childhood wounds that I knew existed, but just didn't think had any connection to my, to my diseases. What was it that helped you make, like, what was it that helped you connect those dots to be like, wait a second, could my physical pain be connected to my, the emotional wounds, emotional, like my past, could it be connected to the trauma or abuse or things connected to my childhood? I I think it just came from like, I, I had started, you know, to ask more questions in therapy than anything. I started to get really, really curious about things. And the actually, we didn't address my endo pain first. The one thing that we addressed first was my insomnia, because that had been my longest standing issue. Like I can remember being nine years old and being wide awake and talking about it. And I mentioned this to you during our our other chat, right? I had never been seen really with that. And I think people downplay this idea of being seen. It doesn't always have to be by a therapist. It could be a coach. It could be a doctor, but no one had done that for me before. And when I talked about, um, you know, how long it had been going on and what do I think it came from? I had mentioned to him, I was like, well, you know, my, my parents got divorced. And so we like, we examined that and I was young my parents separated when I was three, both remarried. 
and there was a lot of turmoil. It was not just a, let's just get divorced. There was, you know, I had a parent that went to jail. I had them fighting that was physical and it, it was really, really traumatic. And saying it out loud made me realize like, whoa, this, this was not normal. Like this was really bad actually. And, and you were when, still carrying, you were still carrying all of that still in your body. I was still carrying it. And what was even crazier is that I remember it like being two or three years old. If you talk to a two or three year old, they don't really know. They can't remember those things. Like how many people can remember those things? I can remember what my mom was wearing. I can remember what my dad was wearing. I can remember what my older sister was wearing. Like it is very, very vivid memories that I just had never talked about because I thought that that just was normal. Like I knew that the, that the divorce and that my childhood was definitely what they call an adverse childhood, but I didn't know that it wasn't normal to remember those things or to be able to remember those things. And when we talked about the sleep issue, um, I, I brought up like when I, my mom had primary custody of us and it was a blended family now. And, um, I wasn't allowed, like if I couldn't sleep, I wasn't allowed to go wake her up. So, and it got to the point where I couldn't sleep so much that I would try and they would lock the door. And so then I was this child in the hallway with a door locked. And then it was like, well, I only need something to do at 12 o'clock at night when she's not sleeping as a little kid. So they put a toy basket at the end of the hallway. And oh, wow. talking about it more and more, I was like, God, that is so messed up. Like, I'm not a parent, but all I could imagine is that like my, my, you know, six, seven-year-old can't sleep. Like, I'm not going to lock the door on them. Like, oh my God. And even now, years later, right, when I can't sleep, I'm just like, man, so, you know, talking through those things and, and not just in a talk therapy, right? Like this person was so vested in my healing that like, there were times that we would talk that you could see it emotionally moved them or, you know, got to them. And no one had really seen those circumstances like that for me before. And to answer your original question, I think that is where the change happened for me. That's so messed up with the basket of toys at the end of the hallway. <laughs> I know. I'm a, and my kid wakes up, you know, here and there at night. And yes, it can be, of course, anything disrupting your sleep. But yeah. I couldn't imagine like not letting him because it not letting him come to me in the middle of the night when he's terrified because, mm -hmm. you know, that it's the reassurance that you're safe, that someone sees you, that someone sees you in your pain and is like, I'm here for you. Right. Well, and to tie this back a little bit to Chinese medicine, right? Or actually any stored emotions, I guess you should say. One thing that as I got deeper into this work that I realized is that stored shame and stored guilt will keep you sick. So as a little kid, when I wasn't sleeping, I felt very, very anxious because I should have been sleeping and everyone else was sleeping. So this was just affirming, like reaffirming the pattern that I learned as an even younger kid, right? When they, when I was quote unquote acting out. So I was a bad kid. So this made me feel very shameful. Mm -hmm. Now I'm getting a little bit older and I can't sleep. And once again, it's like, I'm this bad kid. Um, You're a bad kid. I, there's something wrong with you. Right. Like, oh, yeah. And if it's you look. It's imprinting and conditioning you to believe those things that aren't true, but that's the conditioning that you receive. And as I got more into this work, it became, I mean, now it is my job, right? But like, it became this shift where it was, I was, I was almost using myself as like a study. And I started talking to more people with endo and I started like joining these groups and I was reading through these, I wasn't even necessarily like interacting with them, but I was reading this and I was finding that there were patterns with these people and patterns with even my own childhood. Mm -hmm. And there is a pattern of women, right? Like our reproductive organs are supposed to be sacred. So is it a coincidence that I had this stage four disease when I had all these stored trauma, stored wounds and stored feelings of shame and guilt? I don't think so. Um, and that's kind of where like, when, when I started connecting those dots, I started to notice that I could trust myself a little more. Um, and that was when the mention of reparenting came in. So 
I, I hadn't brought this up yet, I guess. Um, when I was 16, um, my dad died and that was pretty, it was very abrupt. Uh, it was not expected. The way that I was told was pretty traumatic as well. I, I walked through that in a EMDR session. And then the next year, my oldest stepbrother passed away. So it was like one thing after another, after another. And again, I had never tied those things to the reasons keeping me sick. So I started to talk about those things and just explore like what that meant to me in therapy. And I do think that the more that I talked about things and connected things is when my actual physical symptoms started to get better. And when he brought up the term reparenting, I was like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. After my dad passed away, my mom became a pretty severe alcoholic. So I quickly took on the role of, I just was a parent, right? Like I grew up pretty fast and I, I ended up leaving high school early. I, I found myself proving myself by showing that I was smart, right? Like as long as I was smart, people were going to like me. So I skipped a grade and all of these things, right? All of these things that I were do was doing was keeping me sick. And when I figured out that I needed to reparent myself, I realized that I wasn't a very nurturing person with myself. And I say with myself because the other common thing that I see with people that struggle with autoimmune issues or chronic illness is this tendency to be codependent. And I think that people don't really understand what codependency is. They think like, well, I don't need somebody like I'm fine on my own. And I'm like, no, that's not what codependency is. And it's a very common trait in children of parents that are addicts. And what I did was give all my nurturing and all my loving to either my patients when I was working in ICU, or once I was in the corporate position, I was giving it all to the job. So it was, once again, I was earning people's approval by being really good at something that was actually keeping me sick and killing me. And I got called out quite a few times in therapy and I, I really am grateful for this approach. And I don't think it is for everyone to be honest, but there was something that he said to me very early on. And it was when the pain is bad enough, you'll quit. When the pain is bad enough, you will quit. And I was like, I can't just quit my job. Like, what do you mean? I've worked my whole life to get this job. And then it clicked. And I was like, this job is literally killing me. And um, I finally, you know, we figured out how to afford me not doing that job anymore. And in July, July of 2020, yeah, July of 2020, I quit. And I put all my efforts from there on into healing. Like it was going to be my job and I made it my job. Yeah. What did you end up doing, Allie? Because I know today today you're virtually pain-free. Mm -hmm. Like where are you at today? Yes. So the first thing that I did is, and so that's July of 2020, I signed myself up and I was like, I want all the hormones out of my body. And mm -hmm. I had wanted this for a year, but I didn't fully trust myself because I was told, oh, you know, the pain's going to get all, it could get so much worse. And I was like, well, then maybe it will, but maybe mm -hmm. it won't. And I did genuinely believe that. So I had everything taken out. I was, I tapered off of all the other medications. Uh, the only thing left at that time that I was still tapering off of was Xanax, which is no joke. Yeah. And it is horrendous to come off of that medication and they are very quick to put people on it. And I was on an extremely high dose of it. So I had to taper off of that medication over 27 months. It yeah, took me 27 months. Really gently, really gently. The other thing that I, that I did is I, I got a bunch of houseplants and I know this sounds really silly, but I was like, I need to understand what, what nurturing a child, like, and I am the child, right? Like I am the child that I'm nurturing. And I got really, really deep into inner child work. And I felt so disconnected from my inner child for so long because I was so, I was so ashamed of her. Right. And I started doing things that she liked to do. So I got houseplants and I started taking care of them. And then I started to learn how to cook. And if you knew me before, literally my husband had to cook everything. I didn't know how to cook. I hated cooking. I would have lived on easy Mac for the rest of my life if I had a choice. 
but this was how I was going to show that I could take care of myself. And, and regardless to what people with endo think diet makes a huge difference, like diet a huge is, difference. Diet is everything with, for everything. Diet is just medicine. <laughs> it's just, it it's, it's the foundation of everything. But I was always told like, mm, you could try, but it might not really make that big of a difference, right? Like there's so much shaming from the allopathic space towards like the functional or holistic space. Right. So I was like, eh, but then, and I started doing it. So now I'm like, I'm working with my inner child. I'm trying to find what she likes because I don't even know. I got really vested into blog writing because I love writing. Mm -hmm. She loves writing. I got really vested into journaling. I, um, I just, I took this time, I think to like find who she was again and take care of her. And then, you know, here I am years later and I had done 65 sessions of therapy and I was like I think I think I'm just going to try on my own now like I think I'm just going to be now and will I ever go back yeah probably I think there are always times where we benefit from therapy but I also think that it gave me this like trust in myself like no you can do this like you can do life you don't need the guidance of the parents that you don't have, like you can be your own parent. Um, you, you can trust yourself. And I think that is one of the biggest things that I see with people that are so sick is that they don't know how to trust themselves. And if you can't trust yourself, how will your body ever heal? Like it doesn't trust you. There's so much I want to say. Um, a, I think, you know, just to kind of summarize, it was like, like you said, like it was that meeting with that, the therapist, when he started to gently propose the topic that perhaps there was a connection between mm-hmm. past trauma, past wounds and your physical manifestations, like the illnesses and, um, and gently nudge you in that direction, which, you know, really kind of, well, you would already been on the journey, but really kind of intensified the journey into, into those wounds. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, And so it was the trauma work, the inner child work, but then also, you know, a not so great trip with psychedelics, but then you ended up using some psilocybin, which I know we talked about before. Yeah. Go into that in a minute, but, um, you know, and that those all open you up to subconscious space and different Mm -hmm. parts of mind that maybe had been walled off and, you know, your conscious mind wasn't allowing you to go there. Um, Mm-hmm. But, you know, this idea of like processing the trauma, but then at some point you reconnected with your intuition and you began to trust yourself. And like yes. you said, you had always looked outside of yourself. And I talk about this so much, um, you know, in the nest and and here on the podcast and with all my patients, it's this idea of at some point we have to realize that it, we need to look internally for the answers. The medicine is inside of us. Yes. Yeah we can look outside and gather wisdom and, you know, opinions from the so-called experts. And I'm a so-called expert, like I'm an expert, right? Mm -hmm. I say so-called just because I'm not the expert in you, just like a doctor that I see is not the expert in me. We are experts in ourselves. So at at the end of the day, we are the expert in us. I am definitely an expert. I've been studying in this field of mind-body medicine for over 20 years. I've been practicing for over a decade, helping women like Mm -hmm. you heal that is what I do. I'm definitely an expert in what I do, but am I the expert in you? No. And that's why a relationship with, you know, uh, between a practitioner and and a patient is it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. And, and at some point, and and my point of saying this is, you know, we've been trained, especially as women to look outside of ourselves for the answers, because we have been taught not to trust our intuition, not to trust ourselves. And what I find so beautiful is, is you found your way back to yourself and now are learning to nurture and care for yourself in a way that you were never nurtured and cared for. Your needs no. were not met as a child. And now you are meeting those needs yourself, hence the reparenting. And you are healing. Your body is healing. How many of the drugs are you still on? Are you on any of them at this I'm point? I'm not on any, no. You're not no. on any of them. And how is I, your pain? Um, I don't have any pain. Um, the other thing that I did primarily within like definitely the last two years I had a lot of questions um I think you know having a science background does this right you ask a lot of questions and I couldn't get any answers and that was driving me insane that even drove me insane when I was in just the allopathic space like no one could tell me why I had endo right they'll give you these well it could be retrograde menstruation or it could be this and I was and now I I remember 
going into my last like OB appointment right before we moved. So this is literally this time last year. And it gives me like, it, it makes me want to cry because I remember looking at my doctor and, you know, he was like, okay, Allie, why are you here? And I was like, well, it's just my, you know, annual, annual well woman check before we move. And he looked at me and, you know, he read that I wasn't on any medications. He was like, so you're, you're cycle charting. And I was like, yep. And I found, I found on my own what my imbalances really were. I found where my pain points in my cycle were by charting it. Right. So when you say that you have the answers living, living cyclically, yes, you have the answers, but no one teaches you how to do this. Right. And I taught myself, I read all of the books. I went to all the master classes on fertility awareness, but even then no one is teaching people with like PCOS or with endo, like, Hey, so if you can find data collection, right. That's all I was doing is I was collecting data every cycle and charting it. And I would get horrible headaches, but no one could tell me why. Well, they were happening due to ovulation, right? Like I mentioned before, it can be a very inflammatory process. So once I started working on certain aspects of my health, using the right supplements that I also found myself, right. Focusing on gut health, I really didn't have very many problems. And when he looked at me, he was like, you don't even look like the same person. What have you done? And I was like, literally, what have I not done Mm -hmm. at this point? What have I not done? And he said, you know, I don't, I, he's a, um, an attending, right? So he is the top that you can be in UC Davis, which is a huge school in California. And he was always very gentle with me and he was a, a great Western doctor. Right. But he said, and I, I still have it. I saved it in our like portal chat because I was like, I just want to remember this moment. He was like, I have not seen patients do the work that you do. Like can you, I- you did it. Yeah. Can I say something? Cause when you say no one is teaching women this, no one in the allopathic space. Correct. <laughs> yes, yes. And we shouldn't say nobody because there are a few medical doctors who are starting to wake up to this, but for the yeah. majority, like 99% have no effing clue about any of this, but there are many naturopathic doctors or holistic practitioners like myself who like, this is just how we practice. You know, this is what we learned. And while I didn't learn about the infradian rhythm necessarily in school, I was taught about this idea of, you know, uh, this, our natural biorhythms in Chinese medicine. And then as a young woman, like I was in my 20s, late 20s, when I was in naturopathic school, actually it was before I went to naturopathic school that I went and taught myself about my cycle. And I found the book, Taking Charge of Your Fertility. And that was, you know, that was when I was doing my master's before I got into my doctorate and I taught myself, you know, my cycle. And then I got to naturopathic school and, you know, it was reinforced. Everything that I learned was reinforced with Chinese medicine. And, you know, there are many doctors like myself. This is what we do. We educate women on their menstrual cycles, on the sacred feminine blueprint that is innate, you know, like it's... It's this beautiful cyclical rhythm that we have, this infradian rhythm. And the more that you can understand that and nurture that and live by that, you know, that alone is so healing and does so much um, to help with things like endometriosis or PCOS or fertility, like infertility. Like it just, it just blows my mind that it's not part of conventional care. And so many women have no idea. It was the same with me when I was in my twenties, I had a cyst burst and I also was having some issues and no one, of course, I went to, you know, a a medical doctor, an allopathic Mm -hmm. doctor, and their, their remedy was to go on the pill or to, you know, to go on birth control. And in my intuition at that point, uh, I had already had a, a healing and had gone in search of other answers. And it just, I was in touch with my intuition. I was like, nope, that's not right for me. And I went searching for a naturopathic doctor. And that mm-hmm. is when I found out about taking charge of my fertility. When I started taking, like looking at my cycles and started using natural birth control. And by natural birth control, I just mean fertility awareness. I yeah. became aware of, and I, I, I mean, I was a, I have an undergrad, uh, undergrad in science. I knew the menstrual cycle. So I went back and I just was like, oh, okay, well, let, let, let's just do this. <laughs> and I yeah. taught myself everything 
and was like, okay, well, there's only five days out of my cycle that I can actually get pregnant. pregnant yeah. So I, I'll either just use condoms or abstain during that time. And exactly. you know, the rest, like, why would I put all of these synthetic hormones in my body that have a huge list of uh, side effects, et cetera, uh, when I can actually just follow the rhythm of my own body. And that was when I first became aware of the biological blueprint that we have as mm -hmm. women and beautiful and, and wonderful it is. And then started to, it was Chinese medicine when I got into naturopathic medicine that I started to learn about, uh, it was Chinese medicine that taught me about the rhythm of the menstrual cycle and how to eat different, you know, different ways at different parts of the cycle and activity, like adjusting your activity, your sleep, your rat, like all of these things. Okay. And then I started putting it into practice and, you know, that was in my late twenties, you know, I'm in my forties now. So it's been, you know, several years that I've been doing it and teaching it. What I find mind boggling is the fact that many women have no idea how their bodies work. And yeah. when they go to an allopathic doctor with any sort of menstrual complaint, they're automatically put on synthetic hormones or a copper IUD or whatever. Right. But no one ever speaks to them about, hey, do you know there's a biological blueprint that you have innately? And if you were to follow that and care for yourself and nurture yourself the way that you nurture everyone else in your life, a lot of these things, you know, mm -hmm. and, and heal the emotional wounds and all of these, like there's there's so much more. It's not pharmaceuticals. Yes. There's a time and a place, but by God, they're not the only thing. And if we can, mm -hmm. if I do anything with this podcast, that's like the point mm -hmm. that I'm trying to get across. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. People like yourself, come on and share their stories because there's inevitably someone listening who is having a similar experience to you. And maybe it's not with endometriosis, but it's with IBS or Crohn's or, you know, an autoimmune condition, anxiety. Like all of these things are happening as messengers, right? They're like a, another place to get curious with versus, well, that's just how I am. And, and I do think like kind of to, to touch on um, the rhythm or the cyclical nature that women have, right? Like we have something called an infradian clock versus just a circadian clock. We get both. And I used to think that was so lame, right? I'm like, so now I have to adjust my life to this cycle. And now I'm just like, actually, it's so cool. Like guys only have magical. one o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> We're magical. And it explains things, right? Like, I think, I think for so long, I was thought that, or I was taught, sorry, that it's not okay to be sad mm -hmm. and that it's not okay to have like depression or anxiety. And well, it's, it's definitely not long-term, right? Like that's definitely something to be curious about. It's like, actually, sometimes things are just sad. And like, we do have different waves and like, we're also cyclical beings. So depending on what stage of your cycle you're in, that might feel heightened or if it's ongoing, like what is this sadness telling you versus like, what is it doing to you? And that is where my shift happened. It's, it's now, I'm not saying I'm never going to have pain again. And I actually got asked this question on Instagram the other day. Well, what happens if your endo comes back? And to be honest, I was terrified of that idea, right? Like I had, I mean, I just walked you through an hour of how I like got here right like of course that would be horrible but now I would look at it as okay well I'm clearly not seeing everything right this is my body telling me something what am I missing am I living out of alignment with my values am I honoring my values am I honoring my boundaries because that's a huge thing and like boundaries protect your menstrual cycle right am I making decisions that are in line with where I want to be in my life like those are all would all be things that I would look at and even now, like I am definitely in the phase of my life where we are trying to have a baby. And I have always been told that it's going to be really hard for me, like always. And it's a bit of, do I genuinely believe that? Or if it is like, is that going to stop me? Like, what can I do? I know a lot, right? Like I, I trust myself that I know a lot. So when you mentioned my psilocybin journey, my last psilocybin journey, it was very much around that. And there in Chinese medicine, right? Or in the energy space, there's a balance between the masculine and the feminine energies, right? And like both genders have that. So there's a balance between both. I have always lived in my very logical, masculine driven space. And I know that 
I live in that space when I start to get more issues with my referred pain. All of my referred pain has always been on the right side of my body, which is the masculine side of my body. And more recently, I've started to do like body work, acupuncture body work. And the person I do it with is a generational healer using acupuncture. And I had been talking to her about this and, you know, she, um, English is not her first language. So she had always mentioned, she says, well, you know, Allie, like you can't, you can't control everything. Like basically stop controlling, stop trying to control. It's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like, yeah, okay. I get it. Still get it. Um, and what came up in my last psilocybin journey was these two very vivid images and one was a very happy image. It almost looked like a 3d ultrasound of a baby. Mm. It, I mean, that would, that is what the image was. And it, and it gave you this feeling of like, Oh, that's, that makes me feel happy. And very quickly after that, there was a, a lioness that came in and she wasn't a happy feeling. Like she was very much like, almost like distorting the other image. Like I, it was like, wait a second, like go away. And I got up and walked, walked away from where I was looking. I was like, okay, I can't stand this image anymore. And later on in the journey, it came back and I stood there and I was like, what is this? Like, what is this trying to tell me? Like, what is this trying to tell me? And what was crazy is at the time, my shoulder, like when the lioness came in, my shoulder was just on fire, like on fire. And I was like, interesting, like that's my masculine dominant side. And after the journey was over, I was, you know, sitting there thinking about it. And I was like, this is, this is essentially like, whatever I believe in like the universe. So to me, I was like, this is the universe basically saying like, if this is what you truly want, you have to surrender and stop trying to control everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, so the, I mean, and that was probably like maybe like six weeks ago, I think. And so I think there's now when I look at using psilocybin as medicine, it's very much like a teaching journey for me. Yeah. My friend Megan, she's a naturopathic doctor. She and I have recorded an episode all about plant medicine because we we went to uh, the jungle to do ayahuasca. And I'm a big, I'm a big fan of ayahuasca and psilocybin and, and psychedelics mm-hmm. in general and their place in healing trauma and helping us open our hearts really and get into the subconscious space and, and really heal. So yeah, I think it's wonderful. I want to circle back to before we end up our, end our call here, circle back to this idea of like, when someone asked you on Instagram, like, what would you do if your endo came back? And I want to make a comment to that because, Mm -hmm. you know, as the listeners know from listening to this podcast, or if you haven't, this is your first episode, you can go back and listen to other ones. (laughs) talk about my healing journey. And, you know, I've lived that I've lived that. Well, what happens when it comes back? Cause my psoriasis did come back mm-hmm. and, you know, and then I healed it again and then it came back again and I healed it again. And guess what? I'm going through another healing right now. And every time, like we talk about being cyclical beings and having an infradian rhythm as women, well, guess what? Healing is cyclical too. Mm-hmm. And with every, every time it comes back, and maybe it won't ever again. I don't know, but I'm, I've surrendered to that because every time it does, I know I'm going deeper and deeper into my healing. And I know I'm becoming more and more myself because that is what, for me, that's the gift of the psoriasis. That's what it's taught me. It always shows me when I'm out of alignment. It always shows me when there's something deeper. It's literally the part of the curriculum that my soul has chosen for my life. And the moment I accepted that and not accepted from like a place of like passivity and like, Oh, well, I guess there's nothing. No, I don't yeah. know. No, it's an empowering thing. Cause I'm like, you know what? I, my soul chose this and mm-hmm. this is here to teach me. And it has been one of, yes, of course it's been con- a source of considerable pain, <laughs> you know, just like with oh, your, yeah. your illness, like, you know, would I wish it on myself? No course not but when it shows up I don't curse it it shows up and I'm like okay you're here to teach me again what is it that doesn't mean that I go into it all the time without kicking and screaming hell no there are definitely days where I'm like okay I'm good let's tap out here for a little while (laughs) a break but I think you know that underlying belief and faith that there is a purpose and there's meaning and um you know and with the resurgence, there's always a greater healing that just, it keeps me, it keeps me going and it it gives me hope. 
And so, yeah. Well, I think when you say that too, it's like, I think it, I'm paraphrasing this quote, but Gabor Mate always says, right? Like if you can see these things, these triggers, these wounds, these illnesses as what they really are, they're teachers, right? Yeah. But it's, it's not just like, it's not my job to go out there and tell people, well, you know, your sickness is actually your teacher, right? Like that wouldn't, it, it wouldn't flow would well. probably scream at you. <laughs> you have to be in a place to receive it. Correct. Yeah. But when I hear you talk about that, it reminds me of this concept of generational healing, right? Or being the person that breaks the, the curse, if you will, right? So when I think about these wounds, right? And my traumas and, and whatever you want to call them, right? How they manifested in me was endo. How they manifest in other people, like yourself, right? Is like psoriasis or these other autoimmune issues, right? We know this, but at least there's this like, wake up call to certain people that like, Hey, maybe this just wasn't mine to carry, but I'm going to stop it here. Right. Like I genuinely believe that everything that I am trying to work through is, was passed down for me from my parents, right. With their own issues, with their own addictions, with really like lack of tools in their life box. Right. Like now it's my job to stop that so that it doesn't go on to the next. So when you say that, that's what I hear. Yeah. That's beautiful. No. And I agree. I really think that I think of like you know, so many of the things that I, the wounds that I've worked through and are, I'm still working through in my life, I think it, it stops here. Mm-hmm. You know, it stops with me. And I think that's as best I can, not that I'm right. putting myself, not that I'm like, it has yeah. to stop. oh my God, another thing to obsess and be perfectionist about. No, no, no. That's not what we're saying. If something is brought into your awareness and you are empowered, because again, it's not that our, I don't want to blame my parents for anything. Mm-mm. They did the best they could, and they're still doing the best they can. However, they did, did either didn't have the awareness or they didn't have the tools. They didn't have the opportunity to perhaps do that healing. If I mm-hmm. do, and I'm willing, then hell yeah, it's going to stop with me. I, I feel like we could talk all day, I <laughs> but, but Ali, I just want to, again, just kind of circle back, like to summarize, like you had such an incredible, crazy, painful journey to then like all these medications, the surgeries, all of these things to then have, you know, I feel like it was a gentle, gradual awakening for you um, Mm -hmm. where you were like, wait a second, could there be this connection between my past trauma and what's manifesting in my body? You made that connection. You reconnected with your intuition. You worked through, you felt the feelings you felt you let the emotions the energy in motion you let that mm-hmm. energy move through you instead of just being stored and stuck in the body and now you're sitting here in front of me I know the viewers or listeners yeah. can't see you but in front of me you know living uh, this beautiful life in Costa Rica mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, pain-free and medication-free and hopefully trying mm-hmm. to get pregnant like yeah. hello that's huge it's wild yeah it's wild when you hear someone say it like that <laughs> It's wild. And so for those listening who want to find you, they can connect with you on Instagram and I'm going to put links uh, to your new website and things like that underneath in the show notes. But um, is there anything you want to say just before we wrap up? Yeah, I think if, you know, if you made it through the podcast episode, the biggest thing that I hope someone would take away from this is that I don't, classify myself as special, right? Like, I don't think that I'm just like this one-off situation. And I think that healing is possible. Like, I hope when you hear this, this podcast that it's, it's giving you hope because there is a lot of hope out there. And like you said, like everything that you need is inside of you. You probably just need help finding it. Yeah. And that is, you know, there's healers out there like myself and you, and like, you know, that's, I really feel like as a, as a quote unquote doctor, I'm a healer, I'm an intuitive, all these things. Mm -hmm. I'm a person at the end of the day. And when people, when I come alongside my patients, I'm not telling them, Hey, this is what you have to do. It's always Mm -hmm. just mirroring back to them. What I see for them to be like, Oh, wow. Okay. And then what resonates with them, with their intuition and you know, what feels right for them again, because you're the expert in you, but um, I really love that there is hope right? And the medicine is within you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nest Podcast. If you're a woman who's interested in reclaiming your health and well-being holistically, then I'd love to work with you. My passion is helping women reconnect with their intuition and sacred feminine blueprint so they can heal their bodies. If any of the topics from this episode resonated with you and you'd like to know more about how you can work with me, then check out my programs via my website link below in the show notes or pop over to my Instagram to say hello. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.